0: Hey there, everyone. It's uh, David Barnett from davidcbarnett.com, the blog site, YouTube, iTunes, SoundCloud, Google Play channel podcast, where I talk about buying, selling, financing, and managing small and medium-sized businesses. Today, I'm joined by attorney Trevor Crow from Crow.legal, who's in the Denver, Colorado area. And Trevor, uh, your practice is all about business. You help people buy and sell businesses and you also do capital raising transactions and helping people you know, comply with securities rules when they're trying to get investors and things that come into their business. How are you doing today?
1: I'm doing great. Thanks, David. Uh, I'm glad to be here again. Uh, appreciate it.
0: Yeah, no problem. Um, I'm having Trevor on the YouTube channel here today. Trevor was uh, the expert guest speaker that came in to talk with the Business Buyer Adventure um, group coaching program back in September. And we did an extensive conversation about transactions and and the legal work and and some of the different terms and conditions that you've seen um, in the course of your practice. Um, Some of the things that often people who are new to this don't really believe that some people may be able to get done in a transaction, for example. Um, And then just before we hit record, you were telling me a little bit about a transaction you just went through, which I thought raised some great topics about something we could talk about today. And uh, we're talking about a rollover, for example. And so mm-hmm. so why don't we have you explain what you mean by the term rollover so we can, we can make sure everyone's following along?
1: Sure. Yeah, so you know, oftentimes if the buyer is a um, private equity type buyer or financial buyer who doesn't want to come in and, and actually manage the company, they're really just looking at, at buying the business as a source of uh, revenue stream, uh, then they often want the management to stick around. And so if the management owns equity in the company that they're buying, then what they, we, you know, what the best way to do that then is instead of buying the assets and then the management getting taxed on that uh, and then, and then having them buy back into the new company, you know, they try to roll it over and then the rollover is usually uh, we attempt to do that in a tax-free basis. So the managers or the founders of the company can come over um, and this can be a situation where it's small, you know, 5% rollover can be the recent transaction that I just did was was three founders of an engineering firm, and they rolled over 30%. Each of them 10% uh, rolled over. And so the private equity company came in and bought 70% of the of the new co. Um, and there's some complex reorganization entity stuff that we had to do prior to the transaction, but it was a, a sale of... Equity in the business, and so that we and again, was, I don't want to get into all the details of the pre-reorganization. Um, but once we did that, then the, the founders kept thirty percent of the company, and then the and the private equity firm came in and bought seventy percent. And so that's that's kind of what we consider a rollover. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that's usually combined with an employment agreement with those um, those rollover founders or managers that can- well, just, just before
0: you out. get into that, I, I just want to recap quickly. So if yep. you can imagine you've got a, a company and it could be formed in a many different ways. It might be an LLC or a partnership or what have you. And there were three owners and, and the private equity group wanted to buy in, make an investment. So before they did that, these guys had to create a new entity and then sell uh, stock in that new entity to the investor group so that the investor ended up being the majority shareholder. Now- Um, in my book, Invest Local, I actually warn people about becoming minority shareholders in businesses because shareholders, of course, get dividends. And as soon as you become a minority shareholder in something, you then have an interest in how the business is run. Because if the majority shareholder is doing things that, that makes all the profit disappear, there's no money left for dividends. And this is what you're getting at about the employment agreements, because the three people who had their own business and now are minority interest owners in this new entity, they need to make sure that the profit that's generated in the business can actually fall to the bottom line so that they can get their their dividends out, right?
1: That's right. Yeah. And so we have, you know, several documents that now come into play in this in a transaction where there's a rollover that, that, you know, if you're representing the uh, seller that you need to be concerned about, you know, so in my case here we had employment agreements, which, of course you know the the buyer wants the the idea behind employment agreements is they want to provide an incentive for those those um, managers to stick on and stick around because they're a big piece of the business um, especially in this transition period Um, but also that's the entity document so we have the new co uh, and you know the buyer comes in and and now owns 70 percent of that that entity document is very important as David mentioned because Right, all the profits of that, if, you, if I own 30% of that company, I want to make sure that the profits are coming out and, and can actually get to me. But if those are getting um, wiped out because of it's, the company becomes highly leveraged because the buyer comes, comes and straps it with a bunch of debt, or two, there's a lot of management fees or things that yeah. they, that, that uh, buyer can come in and take off the top um, as management fees before it hits the bottom line or, or is available for distributions to the equity owners, and that's a problem. Um, you know, there are other, other things to be concerned about or what other rights do you have? You know, you're a 30% owner. Um, do you have a right to approve anything? Major transactions, issuances of new, new equity? Because you know, if, if the buyer comes out and issues a bunch of new equity to somebody else, that dilutes my 30% to, to something. Right. And so do we have any protections there? Uh, there's just a- and, and,
0: just, and just for people that are watching along, what, what Trevor's talking about when he said dilutes is that uh, a company typically in its initial founding documents, it, it, there's either a limited number of shares or an unlimited number of shares. And so in this example, if there were a hundred shares and the three uh, people owned 10 shares each and the investor bought 70, as a controlling shareholder, as a majority owner, if if they decided at the board level to issue new shares to other people, say another hundred shares, then the 10% stake that the founders had would suddenly shrink to 5% because now there's 200 shares outstanding. So, so like the, it's not just how the money's being used. It's, it's how the the majority owner is going to make plans for this entity in deciding what they're going to do long-term, if they're going to have other investors come in, all this kind of thing. These sellers really have to make sure that all the different angles are protected so that they don't, you know, end up squeezed out. I guess would be a good way of putting it, right? Yep. Yeah, yeah. Right. And so, and so, you're able to to help prevent a lot of that stuff through the different contracts that you put in place.
1: Yeah, we we try our best. I mean, it's a negotiation, and and you know, honestly, when you're dealing with um, certain private equity companies, they're they're they want a lot of flexibility because a lot of people are trying to do something like. <clears throat> Uh, a roll-up, for example, where they're going to be buying other businesses and, and rolling them up into uh, trying to create a big platform-type business. And so when they have that, you know, their argument on their side is, we need to have a lot of flexibility to do whatever. We need to be able to put debt on the company. We need to be able to issue new interest if we need to. We need to be able to do that. So it is a negotiation, and, and you know, their response to this a lot of times is, you got you just got to trust us. <laughs> and it's, it's – it, it,
0: you know, I mean, and so, so I did a video a couple of weeks ago explaining what a roll-up strategy is. But if if the private equity group was using this particular firm as their platform and their intention was to go out and buy other businesses to roll it into this one, well, well, then yeah, I mean, these guys would have to be concerned that the the value for them was improving over the course of these transactions and not declining, right?
1: Right. Exactly. Yeah. So you know, it's a, it's definitely a. A give and take in 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 negotiation so you know we we try our best to get as many protections as we can and usually we can get get comfortable with that and to the extent we can't you know it's it's talking to the, the sellers and saying hey here's the deal and you know the it's this is what they are requiring in the agreement we push back on it several times it doesn't seem like it seems to be a uh deal breaker and are you willing to accept that as a business risk or not mm-hmm. and then we've got to make a decision there so but but yeah, I mean, in, in most transactions, we're able to get the reasonable protections that, that sellers want or, or, or would like to have in there, and and get the get the deal done.
0: So you know, a lot of people who build up a business and want to sell it one day, they envision the point of selling their business as you know they they get to leave. Oftentimes, they know that there's a transition period of some kind, maybe a mm-hmm. training period. What what I've been seeing more of particularly with respect to private equity groups is that as the yields in public equities markets and things start to decline, they're looking for places where they can invest to earn more money. And then you start to hear about private equity firms that are buying up like veterinary clinics or dentist Mm -hmm. practices, like areas that they probably Mm -hmm. never would have gone into before, but businesses that could be very heavily driven by the personalities in charge. And Mm -hmm. so you know, does it make sense to buy a vet clinic if the vet's been around for 40 years and everyone in town knows the veterinarian, you know, that acquisition, the value ongoing is, is heavily tied to that individual person. And so, you know, this kind of thing is, is one of the ways that those groups try to make sure not only do we employ that veterinarian for a while so the goodwill could transfer to other employees, for example, but let's make sure that person has an incentive to stay on for the long haul. And making them part owner is one of the ways that they try to do this, isn't
1: it? Right. Yep. That's exactly right.
0: Now this is not a small business that you're in your example here, this is a business that had several million dollars of mm-hmm. revenue. Um, mm-hmm. you know, the, I often will have people that will book time with me to talk about doing a deal and they'll start to talk about rather complex ideas about having partners and, and, you know, buying someone out over the course of time and things like this. And and one of the things I often have to stop, um, you know, and challenge people on and get them to reflect upon is that often they're trying to do things that are fairly complex for businesses that are quite small. Mm
1: -hmm. And,
0: and it often just wouldn't warrant all the work really that would be required to do to execute such a transaction. So, so in, you know, in, in this case, you know, in a ballpark way, like how long did it take you to do all of this stuff? Um, was it over the course of, of, of a couple months for you?
1: No, so this one, I mean, we were we were coming off. It, it was it should have been over over two months, but okay. we, were, we were swamped with a another deal, and so we honestly couldn't focus on this as, as well as we should have until about a month out from closing. Uh, and so we were just hot and heavy on it for a month. and, and so um, this past basically all of uh, September. We had been working really hard on, on this deal and focused on it. And so that, you know, the, like you said, it was a complex transaction. We had to do a bunch of entity restructuring stuff prior to the, uh, we had to do what's called an F reorg. Uh, and before we could enter into the actual purchase agreement, it was a, it was a sign and close deal. Um, and there was, you know, a lot of negotiation on not only the purchase and sale documents that are typical in an MA deal, uh, but then we also had the employment agreements and the new entity. And all that because of the rollover that made it um, made it difficult. Plus the the reorganization, the F reorg that we had to do prior to closing. So so yeah, I mean this deal was double our you know maybe a double and or two and a half times our normal transaction fees. Um, and just because it was complex and, and it warranted the, the sale because like you said it was a, a multi million dollar deal. Um, and the you know the reorganization and things was going to save a lot of taxes and or at least defer a lot of taxes and so it was worth it and and it made sense, but you're right, you know, on a smaller deal, if this wasn't that size of company, it just wouldn't warrant those, those fees, you know, it doesn't warrant $20,000 in legal fees to do uh, a small deal. And, um, you know, if it's, if you're selling the, something for $200,000 or something like that, uh, you know, you don't want 10% of your, of your purchase price going to attorneys. Uh, and so that it just wouldn't warrant it.
0: Yeah. And, and, you know, I I will sometimes get into a conversation with people about asset sales versus share sales. And, you know, the vast majority of small businesses are done as asset deals, you know, just for a liability point of view and makes financing easier, et cetera. But as you get bigger and you get bigger and more complex entities that have maybe contracts in place with, with different customers, um, then it can start to make more sense to do, to do a, a share sale because then you're not changing the entity. But, let's talk a little bit about some of the impact that customers can have on these deals. Because very often if the business sells to a large company or like a government agency or, or something like this, or, you know, a branch of the government, you know, if you if you got the contract to do the cleaning down at the courthouse, for example, th- those contracts may have um, in them some language about whether or not the contract is assignable to, to a, a new entity or whether a change in control could give that customer a reason to break the contract.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's right. And so, you know, the, the, the big question there is if, if you don't have an assignment, if there's an anti-assignment provision or a change of control provision in, in a contract and you're doing an asset deal, then, you know, if those contracts are important, do you wanna get an assignments, you know, those third party consents to assign those contracts prior to closing? You know, if I'm a, if I'm a buyer, I wanna see those in place um, which is always a tricky thing to do because you deal closed yet and you're, and you're already talking to vendors about potential sale, which is something you don't want to do. Um, so yeah, that's definitely a tricky, tricky thing now. And if you're doing an equity sale, sale stock or sale membership interest in the LLC, typically you don't need an, a third party consent unless there is a change of control provision. So, you know, an example, the, this past deal that we worked on, um, you know, that became an issue that. Wasn't really pointed out, or we didn't figure out until um, you know a week before closing, which was kind of stressful. And uh, that, one of the largest contracts that the, the selling company had was had a change of control provision. Now, luckily, they had a great relationship with the uh, with their customer and was able to to talk to them and and um, get the buyer comfortable that that's not going to be an issue. Uh, and I don't think they had a they didn't have a signed consent, but they closed, you know, buyer closed over it at the time. And I think they're getting a signed consent, but we're going to just get a signed consent post-closing.
0: Now now that customer probably though, took great comfort in the fact that the the three principals that they were dealing with before would still be the people that they were dealing with.
1: That's right. Yeah. And
0: that's the whole reason why the buyer wanted these three people to stick around.
1: Right. Yeah, that's to right. It
0: helps smooth this stuff over, right? Because, mm-hmm. because they're the known quantities as far as the community and the customer base out there.
1: Mm-hmm. And then in, in the 30% rollover is, is skin in the game, you know? Yeah. So you, you know that they don't want, or the buyer has, a, has more reassurance that these guys want to stick around and want to make sure the company does, does better because to the extent that it does, they get paid on 30% of that uh, so that they, yeah. they still have skin in the game.
0: In, in a lot of ways, you know, the, the term you just used, skin in the game, in a lot of the ways, this rollover and keeping the sellers uh, invested in the business provides a lot of the same advantages as a, a seller note would, you know, for a buyer, they want that seller to continue to be invested, but it's certainly stickier and for a longer haul because these people continue to be owners of the business. And they're in fact, you know, you know partners to a certain degree with the, with the buyer, even though they're in a minority sense, but depending on how that shareholder agreement looks I mean these guys could negotiate uh, the ability to veto certain big decisions couldn't they even though they are minority owners of the business it depends what that agreement says
1: That's right that's right so we were able to get in certain things that, that require their consent even though they only you know collectively they only own 30% of the company uh, there was certain provisions you know big ticket items that mm-hmm. required you know their consent before they could do and this was kind of the issuance of new, um, equity interest, which would dilute them, um, you know, mergers, things like that, we're going to require their consent. There were there were a couple others that aren't uh, coming to my mind right now, but yeah, that's we tried to build in uh, those protections.
0: So um, great conversation. And I know that this is going to be interesting to a lot of people out there. Um, have you, you know, I, I want to turn the, you know, the, the direction of this conversation here a little bit, but Let's talk about what's been going on here recently with the whole coronavirus and all this kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, you primarily are practicing in Colorado, correct? That's correct. Yeah. And so what kind of impact have you seen on your M&A deals and the maybe the types of deals that are coming through your office uh, since the pandemic hit?
1: So we had a big slowdown, you know, in in April and May, and kind of every deal when you end middle of March, you know, all the deals died, and um, so that made April and May pretty slow. Things are coming back. I I'm seeing, you know, really all kinds of deals. I have a you know I have a restaurant deal that that's in in the works here. Uh, we have, you know, this was an engineering firm. We got some real estate deals um, that were that were going, you know, acquisitions of portfolios of, of real estate. Um, you know, I've seen a number of different industries, so I I don't know. I feel like people are coming back, mm-hmm. to, and I think there's there's you know money out there to to buy. There was a huge um, you know we just had a also had a kind of an inspection company that deal that we had closed uh, last month, and you know there was this big surge of people trying to close deals in in the U.S. Or before the twenty 27- seventh
0: for the, for the CARES that, Act deadline. Yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah, to get that SBA. Um, six months paid for. So, yeah, we had a big big surge there. Um, you know, honestly, I've kind of been seeing the gamut and uh, I don't know. I mean, I think there's going to be, I think what's going to come and I haven't seen it yet is more distressed deals. You know, there's going to be a lot. Of people I think uh, it just hasn't hit yet where, you know, the companies that that kind of weathered the storm and are doing all right, I think, and, and now wanted to sell, those deals are getting done. Um, there's going to be some, companies that are really struggling and and potentially about to go out of business that I think there's going to be some of those deals coming in the future. But, you know, I honestly, I haven't seen those quite yet.
0: Well, you know, you know, I've had many conversations with people about that six month payment, um, you know, under the CARES Act for the SBA loans that were Mm -hmm. outstanding. And uh, I remember at one point, I, I think I said to someone, you know, yeah, they did that to help small business, but they also did help themselves because the SBA just can't manage that many foreclosures all at once. Right. I mean, right. But like if you bought a business in a highly leveraged way, if you got 90% financing on a business in December and then you had to were forced to close your doors because of a government, or, you know, mandate you know, just a couple of months later, how would you do that? Right. And so now that we've reached the end of that deferral or, or payment coverage period, um, now those people have to start paying. And I, I agree with you. I think that. The, the beginning of the repayment of those loans, again, could be the thing that pushes a lot of these businesses over the edge.
1: Mm-hmm. Yep, I can, I can totally see that.
0: Yeah. Um, Trevor, um, just before we wrap up here, why don't you let everyone know the, the kinds of stuff you deal with and um, and where they can reach you and, and and what kind of people should be reaching out to you that might be able to use your services?
1: Yeah, thanks. So, Trevor Crow, uh, attorney in Denver. We do a lot of deals in the Denver Rocky Mountain region, but we also do deals, you know, have to, done deals across the U.S. Um, we website is www.crow.legal. Uh, so, there's no .com in there, it's, it's crow.legal, C R O W, no E. Uh, and then we have uh, my number is 720 230 7123. You can call me directly there, or email is just trevor at crow.legal.
0: Awesome. Well, yeah. thanks very much, Trevor. And thanks for sharing the, the story uh, with us. And uh, we'll talk to you again next time.
1: Sounds good. Thanks, David.
0: And for anyone who's out there who hasn't already, please head on over to my blog at davidcbarnett.com and join my email list. I send out emails all the time and you get to choose what topics you're interested in. And uh, if you enjoyed a video like this, um, you can make sure that you never miss one by getting the, the email that comes out every Wednesday with the new video. And in anyway, we'll see you later.